So this is the Approaching Shakespeare series, and this week I'm going to talk about the early history play, the second part of Henry VI. And what I'm going to be asking is, how far or in what ways could we see this as an independent play? Do you remember when Alan Bennett's play, The Madness of George III, was made into a film? It had to be retitled The Madness of King George, because uh, apparently uh, American producers felt no one would go and see it if they hadn't seen The Madness of George and The Madness of George too. What I want to try and think about is that question of seriality in this play. Who would go to a play called To Henry VI? Um, and to think about seriality in Shakespeare's histories more generally. And then to ask how uh, and in what ways, with what methods, we might be able to interpret a play whose title tells us right from the start that it is incomplete or provisional or dependent on other texts. So uh, the second part of Henry VI is an early play. The new Oxford Shakespeare that I've been talking about quite a bit this term, uh, which came out in 2016 and is our sort of latest uh, look at, at the chronology and the authorship of Shakespeare's plays. So that edition, the new Oxford Shakespeare, dates the second part of Henry VI to around 1590. 1590. So that makes it the first history play Shakespeare wrote. According to the New Oxford Shakespeare, it's preceded only by two gentlemen of Verona and Titus Andronicus. I talked a couple of weeks ago about recent arguments about collaboration in All's Well That Ends Well. And in this play, too, we have a recent intervention on collaborative writing. The suggestion in the New Oxford Shakespeare is that Marlowe, Shakespeare, and probably another writer, unidentified, worked together on this play. I'm not particularly going to engage with uh, the question of joint or collaborative authorship, except when I talk briefly about conjuring and witchcraft later in the lecture. But it's a thing uh, worth thinking about, not least because the critical or the interpretive implications of those new authorship designations published last year hasn't really been processed. Um, so you could be at the, at the front of thinking, you know, in what way is To Henry VI a Marlowian play? Uh, how would it look different if we knew uh, that Marlowe's, uh, Marlowe was one of the writers of it? Uh, how does Shakespeare's early work look different? So I'm stressing that because uh, it's one place where there's some new work uh, uh, possible for you, for you to catch up with. So let's start with an outline of what Two Henry VI is about. This is a highly episodic play, united, if it's united at all, by the theme of disunity. Basically, the whole play is about dissent, disagreement, and the many challenges to a weak king. Henry VI may have the play's title, but he doesn't have anything about it under control. Factions at the court pitch Henry's formidable French wife, Margaret, against his uncle, Gloucester. A, a rebellion of the people, led by Jack Cade, makes inroads into London. The Duke of York leads an army against King Henry. So the Commonwealth is at war in a turmoil of different groupings, which will eventually resolve themselves in the plays. Uh, final battle sequence into the Yorkists 
and the Lancastrians, the White Roses and the Red, that we know as the protagonists in The Wars of the Roses. The shape of this play is broadly about the rise and fall of different characters. Okay, so rather than being arced around one character, uh, it's a series of kind of waves of rise and fall. Gloucester, Suffolk, the Cardinal, Jack Cade. And thus it follows something of the shape of medieval tragedy, which is known as De Casibus tragedy, De Casibus, the genre of the fall of princes. But it does that in a kind of wave effect, uh, <coughs> which includes uh, several characters rather than just one. These characters are not necessarily literally princes, but the point about De Casibus tragedy in the medieval sense is that it is about socially elevated protagonists. The fall of these characters, the tragic fall of characters in a De Casibus tragedy is as much about social disgrace as it is about moral or spiritual decline. The play ends with a battle at St Albans in which the Yorkist party are victorious and they vow to follow the defeated Henry and Margaret who have fled to London. The, the play's very last lines are sound drums and trumpets and to London all and more such days as these to us before. So the couplet urges us to conclusion or before but the actual sense of the lines is much more contingent. They promise to head off to London to continue the fight against the king. More such days as these seems to establish the ending of the play as a pause for breath or a lull in the action rather than a structured conclusion. So I want to think a bit more about that notion of completeness or seriality for the next part of the lecture. And I want to think about the publishing history of the play to, to approach the question of seriality in reading, and then to think about the theatrical culture of the early 1590s, to think about the implications of seriality for performance. So first, publishing history. Last week we saw that The Merry Wives of Windsor adapted its title between quarto and folio publication. Something much more extreme happens to this week's play. The title, To Henry VI, Henry VI Part Two comes from the first folio in 1623. You'll remember that this posthumous publication is divided into comedies, histories and tragedies, and that the histories category is restricted to plays with a source material from medieval English history, from King John, uh, who reigned uh, in the <coughs> who reigned in the uh, 13th century through to Henry V uh, in the 15th. It doesn't, uh, for example, include King Lear or Macbeth, which are also based on historical sources, nor does it include plays based on Roman histories. So the genre of history, as invented by the First Folio, is English and medieval. Henry VIII is a chronological outlier at the end of the list. <coughs> Excuse me. What the folio compilers have done is to reorder Shakespeare's history plays in chronological order of the monarchs and historical events discussed. So they put the plays on Richard II and Henry IV 
before those on Henry VI, even though they were written afterwards. So to put it another way, like George Lucas making Star Wars, Shakespeare starts with the end of the story, the Wars of the Roses ending in the accession of Henry VII, Richmond, at the end of Richard III. And then it has to do a series of prequels, Richard II, Henry IV, Henry V. Like the Star Wars films, the order of the story trumps the order of composition when the plays are retitled or renumbered as a long series. And the titles change in the first folio to focus more precisely on them that the monarchs as the organizing principle. Thus, the play that was published in Quarto in 1598 as the history of Henry IV with the Battle of Shrewsbury between the King and Lord ha Harry Percy, surnamed Henry Hotspur of the North with the humorous conceits of Sir John Falstaff, that play becomes simply the first part of King Henry IV. Those other titles who got title page billing in the quarto fall away to a more hierarchically ordered sense of historiography in the folio. What counts is the names of the kings. So it's the folio catalogue that gives us the three parts of Henry VI. But this is the first time that the play we're talking about today as the second part of Henry VI had been published under this title. It's the first time the play called the first part of Henry VI had been published at all. Now this bit gets a bit complicated, but let's have a, let's have a go. The folio compilers allocate as a three-part play, Henry VI, parts one, two, and three, three texts which previously had different designations. There's a two-part play plus a single play. So the trilogy in the folio uh, was originally two plus one. The folio's part two was originally published as the first part of the contention betwixt the two famous houses of York and Lancaster with the death of the good Duke Humphrey, the banishment and death of the Duke of Suffolk, the tragical end of the proud Cardinal of Winchester with the notable rebellion of Jack Cade. That's in 1594. So the first part of the contention betwixt the two famous houses of York and Lancaster. The play the folio calls part three came out the following year, in 1595, as the true tragedy of Richard, Duke of York, and the death of good King Henry VI, with the whole contention between the two houses of York uh, and Lancaster. In 1619, these two plays, the plays broadly that the folio calls Henry VI part two and three, were published together as the whole contention between the two famous houses, Lancaster and York, with the tragical ends of the good Duke Humphrey, Richard Duke of York, and Henry VI, divided into two parts and newly corrected and enlarged. So the title, the whole contention, and the idea of divided into two parts, suggests that these two parts comprise a single narrative movement rather than being two distinct and separate plays. You can follow all this titling on the website I've mentioned before, shakespeare-documented.org, which has title pages of all Shakespeare's plays in print, as well as other documents about his life and works. 
the play that the folio prefixes to this pair as Henry VI, part one, had not been previously published. And thus, both compositional chronology and titling have been redrawn in order to produce a three-part play in the folio. One of the functions of the folio's sustained retitling here is to foreground the character of Henry VI, perhaps implicitly to consolidate his hold on the throne, despite, or perhaps because, the king's relatively minor role in these three plays um, uh, that bear his name. The business of the three plays is the sustained dramatic and political challenges to Henry's own sovereignty. But the folio reinstates the king's name at the head of his plays against the flow of the stories within the plays, which are really about the extent to which Henry does not control the narrative of his own country. Now, performing Shakespeare's history plays in longer or shorter sequences became, in the 20th century but not before, the most common way to see them on stage. Uh, as I'll talk about in a minute, it's pretty unusual to see Henry VI, Part Two as a standalone play in a theatre repertory now. Serial performance in the theatre was in step with a certain line of critical thinking. E.M.W. Tilliard's influential reading of Shakespeare's history plays in a book published in 1944 established sequential interpretation as the norm. Tilliard read Shakespeare's history plays as two distinct series which had a collective political interpretation. He divided the history plays into two tetralogies, uh, groups of four. Uh, the first was the Henry VI plays and Richard III, and the second, Richard II, Henry IV's part one and two, and Henry V. And what Tilliard stressed was the cumulative unfolding of what he influentially called the Tudor myth. The Tudor myth. Tilliard's idea about the accession of the Tudors on, uh, at the defeat of Richard III was narrativized across all the history plays as the providential restitution of rightful sovereignty. According to Tilliard, this had been interrupted by the murder of Richard II and then expiated through all the bloodletting of the Wars of the Roses. So it was an argument about sequential uh, reading, which was very much folio-based, because it uh, was about reading the plays in the chronological order of historical events, rather than experiencing them in the order of their composition. And we might just, in brackets, note the date of uh, Tilliard's book, 1944. It might have been exactly the point uh, at which uh, you would have wanted to see a whole series of terrible, violent events leading inexorably, providentially, to a happy conclusion. So Tilliard's writing as much about uh, the end of the Second World War uh, as he is about the Wars of the Roses. But the printed sequence of history plays had for Tilliard an ideological and a conservatively ideological interpretation. Broadly, everything was going to be okay if you took the histories as a unit and kept on reading to the end. And for Tilliard, the end was the coronation of Richmond as Henry VII, the first Tudor monarch, at the end of the play Richard III. So Tilliard is an extreme formal and ideological seriality. The moral and structural con conclusion of the action is deferred 
until the play he imagines as the final episode in the sequence, Richard III. So the whole uh, sequence of the history plays in Tilliard's reading is teleological, and the telos uh, is uh, the uh, accession of the Tudors. I talk a little bit about this high-pressure teleology and how it distorts or even deforms Richard III uh, in the lecture on that play. And it might be worth remembering in passing that the use of the word tetralogy as a subdivision for Shakespeare's history plays comes from uh, Tilliard uh, and is already perhaps uh, inflected with this conservative teleological uh, ideology. So let's look back to the quarto publications. Bringing out uh, the second part of Henry VI as the first part of the contention betwixt the two houses of York and Lancaster also acknowledges it's not a complete play. It's the first part, part of a series. But the suggestion that something will come after the play is less destabilizing, I think, to its integrity than the suggestion that something has already come before. So that's to say, a play called Part 1 has a claim to work on its own terms, even if unfinished, that a play called Part 2 perhaps doesn't, because you already feel you're running to catch up if you, if you, if you pick up the story with Part 2. That quarter publication also doesn't mention King Henry at all. We get, as part of the extended title that I read out, that series of episodic rise and fall narratives that I already mentioned, Humphrey, Suffolk the Cardinal, the Rebel Jack Cade. And the play is titled for struggle, uh, contention, between York and Lancaster, rather than after the nominal king. So the quarter makes it clear that what the subject of the play is, uh, is struggle and dissent, uh, not uh, a monarch. And I think the title also emphasizes the linear connectedness of its events. The destruction of the good Duke Humphrey, leads to the destruction of those who brought him down, Suffolk and the Cardinal. Without Humphrey, York is left unchecked, and the rebellion of Jack Cade preempts and foreshadows his rise. The publication in 1619 of this play, together with part three, the play published as the true tragedy of Richard, Duke of York, as a two-part play called The Whole Contention, suggests that in the early 17th century, these two plays, and these two plays alone in Shakespeare's histories, were thought to have a particular serial affinity. There are no other joint publications of Shakespeare's history plays uh, during this period. There's no Henry IV, Part I and II published together, for instance. Um, so uh, many critics have felt that the claims to serial unity of the Henry VI plays are stronger than any similar claims we might make for the later histories. So, the publishing history of this play seems, I think, to point to its intrinsic dependence on other plays. It does not look like a standalone play in print. The folio suggests that there is a necessary episode both before and after this one. The 1594 quarto suggests this is the opening part of a longer sequence. And the 1619 publication suggests that that sequence consists of two plays, the plays the folio calls Henry VI, parts two and three. I hope you're still with me. There are too many numbers uh, in, in this uh, lecture. Let's move from thinking about publication to thinking about performance. 
Now, we know that from the beginning of the 1590s, there is a vogue for two-part plays in the theatre. Most famous, perhaps, are Marlowe's two Tamburlaine plays, printed by Richard Jones in 1590 as Tamburlaine the Great, the title page says, divided into two tragical discourses as they were sundry times showed upon stages in the city of London. So Tamburlaine the Great divided into two tragical discourses. So some two-part plays are presented, as this one is in print at least, as one big play divided into two. But probably they were as much about the commercial success of the first part as they were a pre-planned, artistically motivated structural decision. That's to say they were more like Legally Blonde 2 or X-Men 2, sequels that tried to recap the financial success of the first part than they were like Peter Jackson's Tolkien trilogies, films conceived from the start as multi-part narratives. Now, we know from modern examples of part two films that the relationship between the two parts tends to be less about narrative completion than about repetition. The second part tries to do what was so successful about the first part again. You don't really need to know the first part because the second part does it uh, essentially the same. And that, incidentally, is probably why part twos tend not to succeed because the aspect of the first part that, by definition, they cannot reproduce is its originality. But Henslow's diary, the diary of Philip Henslow, which is a document of performance and of the finances of the Admiral's men at the Rose, uh, the rivals to Shakespeare's company, gives us some different information. Henslow's list of performances uh, in the early 1590s give a number of examples of two-part or sequel plays being performed on consecutive days. So that's something much closer to the modern performance tradition where you might be able to get tickets for uh, plays that are seen to be uh, in a sequential relation to each other for the same day or for consecutive days. Plays called the first part of Hercules and the second part of Hercules, these plays don't exist anymore, um, were regularly performed in tandem, as if really to get the full story of Hercules, you would want to go to both parts. And there are similar entries for parts one and two of Tamburlaine and of a play Henslow calls Caesar during that period. So that makes it clear that for Henslow, at least, consecutive programming of related plays or serial plays was relatively common. But the diary also makes clear that paired or sequel plays could also be performed independently. There are numerous separate entries uh, divided by days or weeks for each distinct part of Tamburlaine. So that suggests you could go and see Tamburlaine Part 1 in May and Tamburlaine Part 2 in June, or indeed vice versa. The evidence from performance scheduling thus suggests both that there was a commercial space for consecutive programming and that both parts of two-part plays were seen as autonomous and self-standing. So there was apparently an audience for a serial experience and an audience for separate experiences. The plays could be, but weren't necessarily seen as interdependent. Now, we don't have any similar evidence about Shakespeare's history plays 
and we don't know whether they were ever originally performed in, uh, on consecutive days or in uh, a, a kind of scheduling programme which stresses the fact that they're a serial. Instead, we can see that seriality in the folio is an editorial process rather perhaps than a theatrical one. The specific editorial interventions of the folio text serve to build a sequence of plays out of a number of previously separately printed, variously performed, individually titled works. More recent collected editions of the plays uh, in the 20th, late 20th century tend to organise Shakespeare's plays by chronology rather than by genre. And if you look at a, an edition which does that, you can see a much more broken up pattern for these plays. The Oxford edition gives us the second and third parts of Henry VI, Titus Andronicus, then the first part of Henry VI, then Richard III, Richard II, Mary Wives of Windsor. So you can see that that's a very different uh, order of plays from uh, what the folio gives us, which suggests the histories uh, are grouped together. This fractured experience of the English history plays in time gives more structural and dramatic significance to the individual plays as complete theatrical experiences. It suggests that if you were a playgoer in the early 1590s, you may well have seen these historical plays spread out at long intervals, interspersed by lots of other plays, by Shakespeare and by others. So you wouldn't really necessarily have experienced them in the theatre as a series. <coughs> But there are ways in which the history plays content, not just the stuff I've been talking about, about titles uh, and publishing, lend them to forms of serial reading. So in the second part of Henry VI, for instance, we begin with the introduction of the French uh, princess, Margaret, who is married to King Henry. She's been brought from France by the Earl of Suffolk, uh, who has wooed and married her by proxy for King Henry. So that's the play, that's the way the second part of Henry VI begins. Now, the end of the first part of Henry VI uh, gives us Suffolk wooing Margaret. Okay, so it gives us the uh, bit immediately before this, uh, and, and it's the scene in which we realise that Suffolk is not only wooing by proxy, but he's wooing for himself. Uh, Suffolk and Margaret's affair continues uh, uh, until his death in part two. So we might feel that when the second part of Henry VI begins with the introduction of, of Margaret to Henry with Suffolk uh, present, that we ought to know about, th that this is already, you know, we ought to know how this has happened uh, in the French court from the end of the previous play. But I'm not completely sure that's true. The fact that we know there is a part one makes us feel that part two must be dependent on it. But in fact, the major theme of part one which is Talbot's victories over Joan of Arc, is never mentioned again. Talbot's never mentioned uh, in part two, and nor is Joan of Arc. It's as if uh, we've completely forgotten uh, that uh, backstory. Perhaps we could see Suffolk's wooing of Margaret as something similar. After all, from the opening part of uh, Henry VI, part two, the introduction of Margaret to Henry, we can easily imagine back what must have happened before, because that's what we do in all of Shakespeare's plays. All Shakespeare's plays begin in media res, in the, in the middle of things, and we have to deduce what happened before the play begins, just as we have to imagine 
that something may happen after the play ends. Part of the job of interpreting plays is to get a handle on the part of the plot that is just out of sight. For example, why does King Lear set up the love test uh, to test his daughters? Now, if we knew there was a King Lear part one, we might expect that that would tell us, and that therefore uh, the King Lear we've got, which we're now calling King Lear part two, looks incomplete. Uh, but we know that's not the case. Uh, the point about King Lear is that we don't know for sure what happened before. Part of our job in reading the play is to try and put it together from what we have and from what we can glean from the characters uh, in, the, in the current play. That's part of the work of and the pleasure of Shakespeare's drama. So the fact that there are plot elements and events that precede this play, called the second part of Henry VI, isn't at all unique to a history play. It's an aspect of Shakespeare plays more generally, which have a strong sense that things have happened before we came in on the story. And similarly, the idea that not everything is tied up and finished at the end has its parallels in other Shakespeare plays, where we're not expecting that there will literally be another play that will tell us what comes next. These narrative hooks backwards and forwards, that's to say, take on more prominence in our understanding of a history play structure because we're already conditioned to think that the play is connected to the other plays that follow uh, or precede it in historical sequence. And these are, but these are the same formal devices that in a different kind of play would be read as gesturing outside the frame of the drama to an ongoing life for the characters before and after this particular segment. So, so far then, I've been talking about Henry, uh, to Henry VI as a serial drama, using some of the information from its publishing history in individual, then serial, quarto form, and its inclusion and retitling in the 1623 folio. We can see from this that there's lots of evidence to suggest that the play isn't quite a fully autonomous artistic creation, but that it is part of a larger narrative. And depending uh, on your... Uh, narrative tastes, you could say that that larger narrative comprises one additional play, or two, or three, or eight, depending how extended you want the historical serial to be. Uh, what Tilliard felt was that this was a sequence of eight plays. But what I want to try and do now for the rest of the lecture is to try and argue for the opposite of that, to argue for uh, an internal uh, coherence and consistency to this play that would enable us to look at it, to experience it, and to enjoy it as an autonomous uh, play, as just one, uh, one play that we might read or go and see, and not a play which is uh, automatically dependent uh, and, and therefore incomplete. I've said that the elements of the second part of Henry VI that gesture backwards to prior events or forwards to future ones look like the formal properties of serial narrative, making use of prolepsis, or anticipation, and analepsis, or retrospection, to structure a larger sweep of history. But I've also suggested that similar gestures outside the frame of a particular play in other genres look like aspects of verisimilitude, we're just getting a slice of these characters' lives, or like the unknowability about motives that is such an important part of Shakespeare's plays. We very rarely know in Shakespeare why characters do certain things 
we know instead what the consequences are. There's no Shakespeare play I can think of that doesn't refer to events that happen before the play begins or leave open some uh, aspect of what might happen next. So, if we were to try and ignore those elements of the second part of Henry VI, or to suggest that they don't need the other episodes to be stabilised, what might the play look like? So I want to spend the rest of this lecture talking about the claims the second part of Henry VI has on our attention. And I want to talk particularly about its structure, its depiction of rebellion, and briefly about its female characters. I'm not actually sure it's in that order. I'm going to do rebellion first. Now, Jack Cade's rebellion in the play is the shadow version of the numerous threats to monarchical government posed by the play's different factions. That's to say, although it's an uprising of common people <laughs> who are identified by their occupations, uh, I don't think it's absolutely distinct in kind from the rebellions and uprisings of the noble characters uh, in the play. So the popular uprising of the people amplifies and echoes other insurrections against authority. Now, Cade's representation in the play is really interesting, I think. He is mentioned, but he does not appear until Act 4. So one aspect of an episodic play is that characters are not woven through the entire structure, but they appear in quite localised parts of the play. And Cade's part of the play is really Act 4. Uh, one argument about those episodic plays in the early 1590s is that they can be uh, rehearsed. Uh, it's a practical one. They can be rehearsed separately. Um, you, you don't have characters who interact with all the other characters in the play. You have little groupings of characters, and they can rehearse their bits and then put them all together uh, relatively easily. So there may be a practical reason for this episodic construction. When he does appear in Act 4, he claims to have royal blood, and boasts what he will do when he is crowned king. So like everybody else in the play, he wants to be king. Um, all shall eat and drink on my score, and I will apparel them all in one livery, that they may agree like brothers and worship me their lord. The first thing we do, remarks his comrade-in-arms, Dick the Butcher, famously, let's kill all the lawyers. And this statement taints Cade's utopianism with something more violently class-based and distinctly anti-intellectual. As the messenger tells the king about the rebels' arrival in Southwark, all scholars, lawyers, courtiers, gentlemen, they call false caterpillars and intend their death. The rebels hang a clerk because he is able to write, and they taunt a captured nobleman with the charge particularly of uh, subsidising education. Thou hast most traitorously corrupted the, use of the, the youth of the realm in erecting a grammar school, and whereas before our forefathers had no other books but the score and the tally, thou hast caused printing to be used, and contrary to the king, his crown and dignity, thou hast built a paper mill. It's really interesting how clearly Cade's um, uh, rebellion is set not in fact so much against the king as against the educated classes. And what's different about those classes is not that they're richer, but that they're educated. In the BBC television version of the play, directed by Jane Howell in the 1980s, 
an interpolated book-burning scene at this point, reminiscent of Nazi Germany, demonised Cade and his rebellion. <coughs> and there are lots of critics who argue that Shakespeare's representation of the rebels, especially of Cade, is notably more savage and less sympathetic than his sources in the Chronicle Histories by Hollinshed and Edward Hall. So this might fit with a general sense of anti-populism in Shakespeare's plays, the disdain with which he, he treats the self-interested Roman populace in Julius Caesar and Coriolanus, for instance. Uh, there's lots of evidence that Shakespeare is no Democrat. Recent performance tradition is quite a good way to trace this negative version of Cade as a populist or thuggish leader of uh, an ignorant mob. Uh, and it's also worth thinking why this character was cut entirely in the BBC's recent Hollow Crown series. But as in other Shakespearean examples, there is a more nuanced or perhaps sympathetic Cade in one early text than the one the editorial tradition tends to privilege. We've already talked about the different title and the, therefore the different placing of this play in the quarter and the folio. I just want to mention a difference in the staging of Cade's death in these two versions to remind you of how uh, worthwhile it can be to look at um, specific scenes uh, in different texts, different early texts where they <coughs> exist, and to suggest that these contrasting presentations give two different versions of the rebel leader. In the folio text of 1623, Cade is fleeing for his life after the breakup of his rebellion. He climbs into a walled garden to find food. He has a soliloquy which begins, Five on ambitions. Enter the landowner, Alexander Eden, who is musing to himself about how his garden is his own kingdom. You can see clearly the analogy between Cade's intrusion to this walled garden and the larger threat caused by rebellious nobles to the monarchy. Eden asks, who would live turmoiled in the court when such pleasant walks as his garden are available? Uh, he proclaims himself unconcerned by wealth and worldly success. Cade, though, fears that Eden will earn money from killing him. The two men fight, Cade is slain. It's only then Eden realises who Cade is, that he's this notable rebel. He vows to cut off thy most ungracious head, which I will bear in triumph to the king. The very next scene shows the Duke of York leading a rebel Irish army coming to take the crown from Henry's head. So in that characteristic patterning of the play, no sooner is Cade's threat contained through his death than another one rises up, hydra-like. At this time, it's the Duke of York. What this offers is a Cade who is confident and assertive even as he dies, fighting the man who represents the rural landowning class. In the quarter, the encounter is rather different. There's no wry soliloquy from Cade, and instead the stage direction sets up an unequal contest. Enter Jack Cade at one door, and at the other, Master Alexander Eden and his men and Jack Cade lies down, picking of herbs and eating them. It's one of a number of quite expansive stage directions 
in the quarter of this play that I think would be worthy of investigation on their own. But what it gives us is a doubly disadvantaged cave. He's outnumbered by Eden, Master Alexander, Eden and his men, and he is overshadowed or loomed over. He's lying on the ground uh, like an animal, eating leaves, uh, while Eden and his men stand up. You can see that that stage picture uh, is uh, absolutely a picture in which uh, Eden, <coughs> Eden and his men have the upper hand, and Cade is a pathetic, uh, diminished, uh, rather uh, um, kind of even a sympathetic character. He's the underdog. Good Lord, how pleasant is this country, says Eden, which sounds, when on the stage, is a starving man trying to live off grass, grovelling next to him, rather complacent. Imagining this scene on stage, as I say, it's hard not to admit some pity for Cade's wretched state. The power balance of this version of the scene is distinctly different from the folio version we looked at before. And it seems that if we were trying to assess how Shakespeare depicts Cade, it would be important to analyse the emotional differences between these two possible stagings. Now, if Jack Cade is one of the play's most remarkable characters, <clears throat> perhaps its other particularly stage-worthy stage -worthy and dramatic moment is the representation of Eleanor, the Duchess of Gloucester. <clears throat> Eleanor's husband, Gloucester, is Henry's uncle and the Lord Protector. She has ambitions to become queen, and dreams that she has been crowned in Westminster Abbey with Henry and Margaret kneeling before her. There's no love lost between Queen Margaret and Eleanor, who take every opportunity uh, to have a bit of a catfight. In order to achieve her ambitions, Eleanor consults with a witch, Marjorie Jordan, and a conjurer called Roger Bolingbroke. There's a magic scene in which Bolingbroke conjures up a spirit inside a circle, who answers questions about the fate of the king and his ministers while Eleanor watches from above. It's been set up to discredit and destroy Eleanor, but it's a highly dramatic scene that could be usefully compared with Macbeth's witches, but perhaps more interestingly, given that work on the play's authorship that I mentioned at the beginning, with Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. It certainly looks, Bollywood looks as if he sets up a magic circle to conjure up a spirit very much as Faustus does. What's striking about it, though, is the prominence of roles for women in this play. Shakespeare's histories are often criticised for their masculine cast and for the way they place women, like Hotspur's wife Kate in the first part of Henry IV, in subservient or marginal positions away from the power play that structures the main narrative. This is not true of the Henry VI plays or of Richard III, and the role of powerful political women is one of the play's real sources of intrinsic, i.e. non-serial, interest. The final point I want to bring out is something about the play's structure. Throughout the second part of Henry VI, there are shared images and a poetry of repetition. It's easy, for example, to pull out images of rising and falling that accompany and articulate that de casibus structure. But what might be more compelling about the play is the dramaturgical equivalent of those poetic repetitions, a sense of overlaid action amplified through repeated stage tableau. We might call this a material or physical form of concatenation, a 
kind of poetic repetition, verbal repetition, which is here rendered visual. There are lots of ways to imagine repeated echoic stage business in this play, groups of characters and stage arrangements. But I just want to pick out two props in particular. The first prop is the bed in which Duke Humphrey is murdered, uh, which becomes, a few scenes later, the same bed whose drawn curtains reveal the maddened cardinal who is haunted by Humphrey's ghost. <clears throat> the shared prop, that's to say, does the visual work of connection and causation that can be hard to follow in the play's tangled rivalries and affiliations. But the visual connection makes the connection between these two actions, the death of Humphrey and the death of the cardinal, quite clear. And the second prop is that of the severed head. Gloucester dreams that the heads of Somerset and Suffolk were placed on his own broken staff, and this turns out to be a kind of premonition. Cades, as we've seen, is taken off to London by Alexander Eden. Suffolk's is delivered to his lover, Queen Margaret. The curiously laconic stage direction in the quarto reads, Enter the king reading of a letter, and the queen with the Duke of Suffolk's head, and the Lord say, with others. <clears throat> There's a rather brilliant version of these plays performed by Edward Hall's company, uh, Propeller, called Rose Rage. Uh, and they used uh, red cabbages uh, with, and cleavers to, to signal the chopping off of heads. It was an amazing kind of uh, a sound of, of chopping through that dense uh, cabbage, which uh, suggested this uh, repeated um, action of cutting, the cutting off of heads. So what these and other examples might suggest, these examples of internal repetition or echo, might suggest is that there is an alternative reading at play in the second part of Henry VI, one that is less linear, teleological, and potentially serial, and instead more circular, reiterative, or symbolic, a pattern of overlaps and reiterations and symbols, rather than a linear episode in an ongoing narrative. Some of the associations and the horizon of expectations to use Jouss's redolent phrase about how genre works, the horizon of expectations about history, suggests that this is going to be eventful and purposeful. Perhaps what's potentially interesting for us now is to think about other critical methodologies than the serial that might help us make sense of this blunt, obscurely powerful play. So I've been talking about the extent to which Henry VI Part II could be seen as an autonomous, self-standing play by investigating the ways its life in print and performance suggests interdependence and uh, a connection to other plays. But I've included some discussions of the serial of a f as a format and of the kinds of formal properties of prolepsis and analepsis that we might expect from a serial play. <coughs> then I've tried to think about a more circular and less linear kind of appreciation of this play, as if what we see is actions which repeat modify, deepen, and emblematize its themes rather than progress them in purely narrative terms. Next week's my last lecture in this series, and I'm going to look at the play The New Oxford Shakespeare puts as Shakespeare's very first, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. I haven't quite decided, but I think I'm going to try and talk about its best character, the dog, <laughs> the triumph.
Thank you.